Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Hi, everyone. This is Chantal Mayer Crittenden, your host for the Parley Podcast. Well, today I have a colleague, um, a fellow speech and language pathologist and professor from Western University, Dr. Lisa Archibald, who is going to talk to us a little bit about the interaction between language and memory uh, in typical and atypical development. Uh, Lisa is an associate professor for the School of Communication Sciences and Disorders, like I said, at Western University. So hi, Lisa. Hello, Chantel. It is very nice to have you. Thanks for agreeing to do this. I'm happy to be here. So I kind of have uh, a set of questions that I like to ask all of the guests. It's kind of a, a bit of a structure. And then we go off on tangents sometimes and, and it just kind of leads us into various discussions. So maybe a little bit um, of an introduction about yourself. What Tell us about yourself. Okay. Yes, so I am a speech and language pathologist and uh, worked in various settings for the first 15 years of my career. Um, And that's where I got interested in the connections between memory and language in the people I was seeing and in particular in the children that I was seeing. And that led me to go off and do a PhD um, and then begin a research program looking at that. And that's what I do here at Western. I find that interesting. I kind of follow the same path. It's through my clinical work that I had so many unanswered questions and then I thought, okay, well, I guess, I guess I'll try to answer them. <laughs> so right. yes, yes, yes. Maybe tell us a little bit more about your, your research more specifically um, as it um, relates to working memory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So um, I think uh, when we think of, of speech and language pathologists and speech and language pathology, we sometimes think of come at it with a more of a linguistic lens. So what are the language structures that the child is missing? What are the uh, components of language that are impaired? And um, I think that worked well uh, for some of the kids that I saw. And other kids, it seemed to me that that approach didn't really um, pan out the way I thought it would. So for those kids, it seemed to be that they could do many of the language tasks, but only under certain conditions. And it seemed like we needed to look at them um, in a little bit of a different way and maybe consider their memory skills. And so in my work, I've tried to look at children's profiles to see if that makes any sense. If there are kids who are really struggling with linguistic learning versus really struggling with memory. uh, And if there are, then what would we do with that clinically? And I imagine it's not as easy as it sounds to really decipher when is it working memory and when is it uh, the linguistic skill. So maybe just for the listener, walk us through what what is working memory? Yeah. Okay. So that that's, that's great. And I'll just say yes. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> It's not as easy as it sounds. So I think that the thing is, um, we use our language skills to do lots of our thinking and lots of supporting of our memory. And so really, those two things become almost interchangeable in many ways. So finding the point at which this is more of a linguistic problem or more of a memory problem turns out to be quite 
hard and what I thought I might accomplish in my PhD turns out to be more of a career long endeavor <laughs> as we go. So memory. So uh, we have this sense um, that we can hold things in mind, but only so much. So, um, uh, you know, you'll you'll know that if somebody tells you a lot of stuff that you need to get them to stop so you can get to a pen and paper and write, in order to write some of it down um, or you keep rehearsing it to yourself because we have this sense that we can only hold so much in mind. And that's really the sense of working memory. So working memory refers to those things that you can hold in mind at any particular moment in time. There's all kinds of things that we have in other, as stored in our memory. So we, we know lots of things about our life and uh, what's happened to us, um, about the world around us. But that's kind of stored um, in, a, in a kind of different, and an unactivated state. Um, and it's only really what we can currently hold in mind that is our working memory. Right. So... Uh, if you're working on a specific task, whether it be at work, maybe it's a, a child at school who has to do a, a written assignment. So that his working memory would be the task at hand. He's working on this, a certain specific task. He might have to go uh, and, and dig deeper in his long-term memory to recall past information. But the working memory is while he's or she is working on that specific task, right? That's right. So it's the currently activated information, essentially, right? So, and some of that information will be what you've activated from your own long-term memory, what else, you know, the other memories you have stored in your brain, other knowledge you have. Some of it might be activated by what you're seeing in your environment. Mm -hmm. um, and the trick comes when many, many tasks are asking us to use information that goes beyond the capacity of that small amount of online storage to be able to manage. And so we're, we're always trying to use strategies to support what we're holding in our working memory um, in order to achieve uh, something. So now, yeah. yeah, so sorry, I was gonna say on your website, um, there's also a link to a, a YouTube video that you recorded a little while back on tvoparents.com and I will put the link to that in okay. the show notes. And I liked how you use the analogy of pulling a book off of a library shelf to make that distinction between kind of the long-term memory. Um, and then when you're actually reading that book that activates your, um, your short-term memory, I think is what you're saying. And then you even used, you narrowed it down a little bit more and said, if you have a spotlight on that, you know, a particular part of the book, then you're really working on it and maybe taking notes and that's your working memory. That's Am I right. Yeah. That right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So if you think of, you know, what you've got, you can put a lot of things on your table and all of that's kind of in an activated state and you're pulling some of it into that sort of cone of light where your lamp is, uh, uh, you know, is, is striking the table. And while it's on the table, it can be pretty easy to pull all that stuff into the, t into the light. Um, but something that gets not activated, for example, something that falls off the table, loses its activation, and then may not be as readily accessible to you. And some of that stuff, again, you'll have gotten from those long-term shelves, like, you know, in the back uh, shelves of the library. Um, and some you may have been given because of what's happening externally to you. But essentially what's on the table is, is currently activated. But because there might be more on that table than you can hold in the cone of light, you're always trying to juggle that to try to keep what you need active. 
Okay. So if we're putting this into context, if we're looking at a child uh, at school, how might that look? If, if the teacher has taught a lesson on, I don't know, let's say the division <laughs> in math, and then is asking the students to apply this new skill and try to solve uh, a mathematical equation, a division. How would working memory then come into play, if you don't mind? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to think about examples. There's lots of connections there. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about the load of those kinds of tasks and some strategies that you would use. But let's just take um, a, a mental arithmetic um, as an example. Um, so a mental arithmetic task um, requires you to recall the items in the uh, test or in the equation and then do the operation and perhaps even come up with some middle point in in along with the task and have to update the information you have in mind and then complete the operation in order to to spill it out. So um, working memory is holding all of that information in mind and updating all of that information at the same time. And that's the kind of scope of working memory, something in this really quite brief amount of time. So the teacher who may have given uh, pre-teaching uh, to that task, uh, you know, she may have described to them what they needed to do or, um, uh, or given them some new skills that they would need to learn, right? All of that uh, is really going beyond the capacity of working memory. And so that teacher will be attempting to use lots of strategies to try to make that information available and accessible to the kids. So she'll, she or he will be using visualizations and um, uh, environmental supports, putting it on the board at the same time that she's talking about it, um, so that those strategies uh, and that information will be present when the child goes to work um, on their own. Mm-hmm. And like you said, so this will lessen some of the load that you were referring to. Yeah, that's right. So we have this, uh, the, again, this is this related to this, um, this concept I'm, I'm talking about, which is that we this limited capacity of working memory, and that um, we can only hold so much in, time, in, in it in time. And we have this sense that things gradually sort of deactivate, that, you know, we essentially forget them if we don't keep them active. So we all know um, the feeling of, you know, first thing in the morning saying, oh, I've really got to take this thing with me to work. I've really got to, you know, and then it's, it's, you know, it drives you out of bed because you can't stop thinking about it. But then you get up and now you start the morning and you get your breakfast and you get your kids lunch and you get everybody off to school. And you end up leaving for work without the thing that drove you out of bed because you couldn't sleep for worrying about it, right? Mm-hmm. And so what happens there is that as soon as you get immersed in the other things, like getting your breakfast and kids' lunches and getting off to school, you don't refresh in your mind the thing that you were trying to remember. Um, and as a result, there's catastrophic loss. <laughs> there's catastrophic loss of short-term activations in those working memory skills. So you really need to um, keep them active. So re- if, we, if we're not attending to them, uh, then we can easily lose them. And then we can use um, more external strategies that will support that, right? So um, like I said, visualization in a classroom is going to be an important strategy, right? I put the thing in my shoe so that <laughs> there's no way I can leave the house uh, without that, that thing. And uh, <laughs> I don't have to rely quite so much on my faulty, you know, working memory in that case. So um, these are all the different ways that we might try to support 
the memory uh, capacity externally uh, to what we can hold in mind at that particular time. And so this is normal. It is normal for us to forget because we've gotten out of that, you know, working, active working memory state and we've moved on to something else. So when, when should we be concerned if we, if we suspect that perhaps a child, you were saying you were doubting that perhaps the children you were working with, it was, it was beyond just linguistic skills. So how, how do you know? <laughs> yeah, so that is a really great question. I think one thing that's good is that um, I think that the kinds of memory problems that we experience uh, probably map pretty closely to the kinds of memory experiences that kids who are struggling have. And so I think strategies that we can find helpful could help others, you know, those who are, are struggling as well. So I think that's one good thing. Um, the other thing is then um, the, the particular load of an activity and when is that load sort of abnormally high, right? Um, Working memory capacity itself um, uh, is not something we understand that well in terms of where the strict cutoff line for what's impaired and what isn't um, is. Um, we know that there are kids um, who have trouble attending, right? So kids, for example, with ADHD are going to have more trouble attending to what's going on and maybe then refreshing what's in their working memory and that may reduce their functional capacity in terms of working memory. Um, and there are probably other kids who have, you know, smaller working memory. So these will be kids who, who clearly are not able to retain information in mind, and like other kids. There are going to be kids who struggle with aspects of learning, and as a result, tasks that they're asked to do continue to have a high working memory load, even more so than for other kids. So if we take kids that we know well, kids with language disorder... If you ask them to do a language task, because language is a really difficult thing for them to manage, then they have to work really hard with their working memory to understand that. Even if for other kids, that language task might be easy and their working memory load is low. Mm -hmm. So it's very much on a case-by-case -case basis, in a sense. What are that one particular child's strengths, weaknesses? Someone might be really, really good at languages. Someone might be really good at math, let's say, and the working memory load will vary depending on those those strengths and weaknesses, I suppose? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I often say to folks, you know, here's, um, you know, a, a little thing to try to hold in your mind, right? And I'll say something like, you know, famagoichi mu, let's say. And, you know, that's a little bit hard for people to, and they'll say, well, here's an even longer one. Here's a really tough one. Try to hold all these parts in mind. Try to hold this ready opportunity. And remembering opportunity is trivial for people, right? Even though it's the long, much longer phrase or more pieces in it, it's trivial because opportunity is so well known for folks, right? And so the word opportunity they have in their, uh, in, you know, in store in their brain, they have lots of meaning to it, so it becomes trivial, right? So if you have that language knowledge, then that assists you uh, in holding information in mind. And if you don't, then it's more than one chunk. It's lots of chunks to try to hold on to, and that becomes um, difficult for folks. So that means that, yes, the cognitive load, you know, we, if we could calculate it for every person, uh, each task might impose, impose a, a somewhat different load depending on their own skills and what they're bringing to the task. 
Now, this kind of leads me, um, I know that some studies have shown that working memory is an important predictor of academic achievement in both um, literacy and numeracy. So if I'm a parent and I'm hearing this, I think, well, wow, I want to make sure that my child's working memory is at its you know, full potential. So are there any things that can be done to, to encourage a really, I don't know if you would say a good working memory or. Uh, right, right. Yeah. So that's a great question. One that um, we've had a, f- a fair bit of research on. So um, it seems that um, if children work intensively, on working memory activities, they'll get better at those activities or activities that are very similar to them. Uh, what we haven't been able to show is that they have knock-on effects to any other kinds of skills that we're really interested in for life. So kids who do working memory training get better at those things, but we don't see them doing better on reading and math mm-hmm. um, associated with that. And that's been quite problematic for this area of intervention. A couple of reasons it might, that that might be. One is that um, if I'm a learner and my working memory is weak, then for many years I've been learning with other strategies. So I've been using my other strengths to do my learning. And then when I do working memory training, that's all to the good, but it's not the way I'm used to learning. I keep learning with my old habits and my old patterns. And as a result, I don't use any working memory strategies or or better working memory that I might have developed. And so as a result, maybe that's one reason. Mm -hmm. And maybe if we improve kids' working memory, we need to identify the strategies that worked for them and then help them transfer those strategies into other aspects of life um, in order to use them. And that raises the question then that if intensive practice is important and figuring out the strategies that work in a certain context, then perhaps it's better to work right in that context. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have, uh, you know, if you're gonna um, work intensively, work exactly on the skills that you need to work on um, and look for those strategies that are gonna help you you with that particular kind, kind of task. Well, and, and I wonder, because it requires a certain level of metacognition as well. They need to be aware that they have strategies to help with their working memory difficulty. So is there an age, perhaps, at which children can perform this task? Of- right, yeah. So I don't, I don't think we do know. We, we have gotten really well into looking at these strategies and teaching them and how kids are using them. I think that they can be modified for just about any age range mm-hmm. if we are thinking about ways of supporting memory strategies. I think um, bringing those strategies into awareness, modeling our own strategies, mm-hmm. talking about our strategies that we're using to support our memory, um, helping kids use those strategies, even if we're setting them up externally for ourselves, you know, let, you know, let's leave this here. So tomorrow we'll remember to do this sort of thing. And then when you see it the next day, then it's like, Oh, right. What was this here for? Right. So, you know, talking through those strategies can be ways of starting out even with very young kids to begin to use the kinds of strategies that are going to support their, their Mm -hmm. learning. So, um, and then as they're getting older and they're more aware of those strategies, then they can become better self-advocates, right? You know, I need to do this when I'm learning in order to, to succeed in learning. 
It reminds me of a, of a funny story at our house. We have a family plan with our devices. I have three kids, 10, 12, 14. And so if I put a reminder on my phone, I can choose it to be in my work only reminder, but there are some that I specifically choose to put it in family reminders and everybody in the house, you know, gets the reminder and they get annoyed with me. Like, why are you doing that? But I've noticed that more and more now they will say to me, oh, I need to put a reminder to bring my gym shoes tomorrow at school. So like you said, being that model or, you know, I've got post-its stuck on the fridge. Don't forget to, you know, bring whatever it is that I need for work. So I think that's yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, one way that, uh, cause I, I just have to write everything down. I forget. Yes. It. <laughs> yes. yes. I guess I'm still a little uncertain as how can, or, or can parents kind of red flag? Oh, I think my child might have a working memory difficulty. Yeah. So I think that, uh, you know, they're, they're going to see the learning challenges first, right? So they're going to see what's going on in school and 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 different ways in which the child might be struggling with academic learning. Um, I think that things with the uh, that would tip them off into memory things are these um, behaviors of. Um, unexpected forgetting, right? So things where um, they do two of the three things that they've been asked to do, or they ask for many repetitions, um, or, um, uh, you know, they uh, get lost in, in terms of trying to get things accomplished. Um, so I think those are some of the skills. I will say that, um, you know, we did a study where we asked teachers to tell us, or we had people make observations about what kids were doing in the classroom. Um, and generally the kids who had language impairment or working memory impairment were described very much in the same kinds of ways. So um, uh, they, there was a big overlap in the way kids looked at school. So it, I think it is a, a tough thing to eyeball um, mm -hmm. entire, you know, entirely. So. And I suppose um, it's also well, what we call a dif differential diagnosis or, you know, a process of elimination. You know, like you said, it might start with learning challenges at school and then, okay, is it, is it ADHD? Is it attention? Is there an underlying language disorder or? So That's it's right. Yeah. So a while before we can really pinpoint it then. Yeah, yeah. So that's, um, you know, back to that, that, that question that I started in my PhD is how do you, how do you assess um, the differences here? And it is a, a, a trick to try to say, because lots of tasks that look like memory tasks are also language tasks, right? So if I would say to you something like, point to the third black house and the second white shoe, um, you have to hold all that in your memory. That's true. But you have to also understand all the words, right? So it's a challenge to find assessments that tease those things apart. So I'd say, yeah, uh, this child can show understanding um, under most circumstances, um, but it's memory load that's really uh, the aggravating factor mm -hmm. versus, no, this kid's memory is okay, but it's really understanding the language that's problematic for mm -hmm. that child. And so it's a bit of a, a thing to try to tease apart. So you'd almost need a nonverbal memory task, I guess. Yeah, that's right. So what we try to do is um, look at tasks where we've sort of eliminated the ver the language aspects of it altogether. So you don't have to use words 
to show that you're remembering this information um, and see if that shows us that really your memory is pretty good and really it looks like it's more the language. So we try to use those kinds of tests to tease those apart. Now, do you know if um, a typical educational psychometric assessment would tease out those two verbal and nonverbal memory tasks or is it something that you, you know we would have to ask for yeah so um they you would so same educational assessments will have a working memory assessment with them um and so uh, you'll you'll get a sense of working memory the tasks will typically um, still be verbal tasks, so they'll still involve um, uh, spoken responses. Um, and so uh, it may be uh, necessary to, to ask specifically about how language skills are fitting in. Um, and it may be to get a really good sense of where the... Uh, linguistic aspects of language comprehension are we may need to go to a speech and language mm -hmm. assessment to get that more detailed assessment about those skills and it may be then that those two things together the speech and language assessment and the psychoeducational assessment really begin to get at this question of whether or not this is more of a language deficit or more of a working memory deficit. Mm -hmm. I find in a lot of the things that we do as speech and language pathologists seems to be still quite unknown to, to the general public and to people, um, you know, uh, we just had our um, developmental language disorders campaign on October 18th and a lot of people don't know about that and it sounds like from what you're saying that working memory um, is still kind of a bit of a mystery in terms of when is it working memory, when is it language, and how do we, how do we sort it out? Like you said, it's, it's going to be a, uh, it's turned out to be a career <laughs> and not just yeah. a career. Yeah. yeah. Now you keep mentioning working memory strategies. You talked about visualization. What are some other strategies other than, you know, putting reminders in? Are there other specific strategies that we can use? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, certainly, um, so visual, visual, visualizing anything, so externalizing information um, in any ways that we can. So, and aspects of the task, so not just the content, but certainly the content, right? So what does the child need to know um, needs to be sort of accessible to the child, but also the steps that they need to carry out, how much time they have for to complete the task. Um, you know, all of these kinds of things, we can find ways to represent those visually around us um, are good ways to make sure that all aspects of the task um, are supported. Um, things that, um, uh, the, the ways that we use our language as well, right? So um, uh, making sure that what we're, when we're trying to get kids to do a, tasks where they have to do a lot of thinking that they're quite familiar with the content beforehand, right? So mm -hmm. um, uh, teachers do this all the time, for example, when they're doing novel studies, they'll read the story with the class first and do lots of thinking about the story before they come to ask the child to do more integrative kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. Because integrative questions Put a, you know, ask for a fair amount of flexible thinking, and 
when I'm putting energy into flexible thinking, I need to be doing that with things that are easy for me to remember. So we often talk about um, the activating background knowledge, right? And when we say that, what we mean is that um, we want the child to be thinking about things that are connected to the topic at hand because that sorts that supports the, the memory in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. If you can imagine um, you as an adult going to a lecture about physics, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, it'd be very hard, it'd be a lot of energy for you to follow, even hold that information in mind, let alone develop some understanding about it or thinking about it, right? Mm-hmm. But let's say you went to a lecture, let's say your passion is baking, Right. And, uh, you know, or you just sometimes bake cookies for your kids. You know, Um, if you went to a talk about baking cookies, that's probably you could probably think a lot more. Oh, imagine if I threw in nutmeg to that one or, you know, because that's a topic that's really familiar to you. And so you can do a lot more thinking about it. So by using content that's familiar to the child, then we can set them up for success when we ask them to do more higher level thinking um, with that kinds of uh, activities. So if you um, know kids are doing units in school on particular topics or particular areas, things that you can do to talk about those topics at home and support those experiences could be ways of getting them ready um, for receiving that topic when they go to school, for example. Mm Yeah, I really like that example. It reminds me of my son, who's in grade nine, just recently had a test, um, and it was all about the ecology and, um, you know, um, um, photosynthesis and O2 and CO2 exchange and all of that. So this was all very new to him. And, and just listening to you talk right now, I can definitely relate. So we had to talk about all of this and find YouTube videos right. before he could start to really learn and prepare for the test because initially he didn't know what the, they meant. So he was just memorizing. Yes. Oh, this word means da 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 da. And he would recite, you know, a sentence that his teacher had said. So um, I think that very often kids don't understand that they need to understand the content before they can actually apply it to something else. Yes, absolutely. You can feel the cognitive load go mm-hmm. down when it's something yeah. that you know really well. Um, and then you can finally be able to really think about those concepts. And that, you know, that's another important strategy. And I think it's a, it's a strategy that, that needs to be taught. They don't just necessarily figure it out on their own when they're in grade three, four, five, and, and upper years. Yes, absolutely, right? So that um, uh, that sort of uh, rote memorization mm-hmm. needs to be supported with good understanding of the, the concepts, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, it also reminds me, you talked about some of the strategies, maybe give them more time, give them the, spe- the steps to really support all those aspects. And I listened to a webinar recently on um, the, um, sorry, it was in French, all the words in French are coming to my mind, the the efficiency of giving more time to kids. In this this particular case, it was kids with ADHD and the studies had shown that it's not necessarily the time that is helpful. It's helping them organize their time when they get more time to complete the task because kids just had an extra hour but sat there and did exactly the same thing that they they were previously doing, which wasn't working. So um, I think there is so much, like you said, it's a very complex um, 
or what's the word I'm looking for? There's, there's so many factors that intertwine and we need to, to consider all of them. Yes, uh, you're, you're right. You're making connections. So working memory would be considered part of our executive functions. Mm-hmm. And our executive functions is that system where we're planning and setting goals mm-hmm. for the future. Um, and, uh, and, and so time awareness is an important part of being able to get through plans and get goals succeeded. But I agree, it's not just more time, but it's how are we organizing our time? So what are the steps in our plan? How long do we think each step is going to take? And you know, are, mm-hmm. we, are we sort of right about that when we get to the end of our plan are all ways that we can help kids sort of scaffold um, through these tasks. More undirected of anything, undirected visuals, undirected um, uh, time, undirected space is probably not um, going to be as supportive as, as providing some guidance. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that that's something that, that can be done at home as well. You know, okay, you need to leave for your soccer practice in 20 minutes. How long do you think it'll t- take us to get there? What do you need to do before we go? And, and so on and so forth. Right. And that gets back to that modeling that we were saying, right? These things happen. We do these things, kinds of things very fast. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we're not even aware of all the steps that we've taken to achieve the time we're leaving, for example, like to follow on the example that you've just Mm -hmm. given. But if we can become more aware of our own planning and goal setting around those things and the steps we took and just talk about them, right? And so that we can model those, increase the awareness, then kids can re-internalize those things in a more efficient way because they'll be having your model. um, And as a result, then, you know, become to use those strategies, begin to use those Mm -hmm. strategies um, on their own as well. So the good news is uh, research has shown that we can improve working memory, correct? That's right. Mm -hmm. And so how how, how do we do that? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so this gets back to what I was saying. With intensive practice, uh, you can improve your working memory. So people people do these kinds of uh, programs where they're, they're having to increase uh, the number of things that they can remember in a row. Um, I think the, you know, the concern, like I said before, is that that doesn't, there's not the evidence that there's not no real evidence that that's translating into mm-hmm. what's going on um, in school or in, in terms okay. of learning. Um, so again, if I were, if I were able to have my child working work intensively on practicing something, I'd want it to be quite close mm-hmm. to the kind of activities that they need to be learning about. They need to master, they need to get, you know, more automatic or overlearned for school um, to make sure that the, that was really the content. Okay. Really, it seems that, um, uh, you know, we need to be using strategies at the moment of relevance and uh, if it's if it's distant in time or space or or our task then we don't see really good transfer of those skills so we really need it to be happening uh, when it's needed and on what it's needed and so um and, and so we need that i think it should challenge us. We, you know, we need to be thinking of what, you know, what's a kernel skill here that they're going to need for this task and how can I make sure that they practice that so they get that skill 
you know, really well uh, learned and they can then build on that skill. Mm -hmm. I think that's, um, that's how I'd apply what we've learned about the practice-based working memory mm -hmm. training studies that we've seen. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. If I look at uh, any, any kind of activity, for if it's music or, or a sport, you can become very good at knowing what you have to do for that piano piece, let's say, and memorize it and, and become very good at memorizing your piano pieces, but then that doesn't necessarily apply to memorizing the school play. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we have to really work at what, at the task that's okay. on the deck at the time, essentially. Because I often will tell parents when we're talking about strategies, to me, there's a difference between teaching strategies that will improve the child's ability to do X, Y, Z, despite their difficulties. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then like you were saying, there are other strategies that can improve whatever is deficient, but for that specific task. Yeah. So that's right. So I could have a, you know, I could, my working memory could function more efficiently mm -hmm. if I were using some strategies. Um, uh, and so as a result, I could hold the information I needed to do the task in mind because I've got some strategies that I'm using as opposed to doing the task differently or mm -hmm. in a different way. I think it maybe yeah. that connection there. Um, if we can maybe touch on any, any parent who has had a child with any kind of difficulty and, and definitely teachers out there were often um, involved in the individual educational plan, so an IEP. So is this something that is often seen as part of an IEP to, to try and develop some of these, these strategies? I'm actually not sure about the answer to that question. I think it's often identified um, as an area of weakness in um, individual in uh, psychoeducational assessments, and I'm not quite sure how that gets translated. Okay. I think it'll be translated in terms of um, a teaching accommodations like um, mm -hmm. uh, visual visual strategies and uh, use of things like um, written cards or, uh, uh, reminders. Um, you know, I think that's what it will look like in the IEP, uh, uh, in, in record. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think I've seen that before. You're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think those are the kinds of strategies that parents would want to see incorporated for their child. Um, they're the, kinds of strategies that um, I think would help lots of kids struggling mm -hmm. with learners in lots of different ways. Um, what I think is that we sometimes um, assume that we're doing them because we all know them, right? Mm -hmm. So we assume that visualizations are being used or we assume that my gestures are helpful, <laughs> even though my gestures may not actually be adding any content to what I'm doing. So, um, or the pictures around the room are, are, can become distracting rather than actually supporting um, the environment. So um, I think we have to be vigilant about the way we're using these kinds of strategies. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to make your sentences long 
and, and use complex vocabulary and not explain your vocabulary and not provide visual strategies when you're doing lots of thinking, like when you're, when you've got lots of things you want to tell mm -hmm. uh, your partner or your kids in your class or whatever. And it takes a real vigilance and mm -hmm. uh, careful monitoring to make sure that you're keeping your sentences short, that you're explaining the vocabulary as you go along. And so I think it is something that we need to stay vigilant about in order to implement those strategies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think of any typical classroom, they might have a word wall for right. you know something that they've just learned. And then on the test, if the child doesn't do very well, I've seen that with my kids. Oh, you know, you, you, you didn't use the word wall. Right. It could have been helpful. But you know, at the time, maybe they, they just forgot that the word wall is even there, didn't really associate, oh, right, that word wall can help me during the Right, right, yeah. And strategies need to be salient. So this is a problem, right, is if I put a strategy in place and it's there, and then over time, that the salience yeah. of that strategy will drop off and then I won't use that strategy or I won't use that support, that environmental support, let's say, um, anymore. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the strategy is no longer helpful. It means the salience of the reminder is not helpful. So it may need that maybe that we need to change up the way we're implementing strategies um, over time so that the child can say, oh, yes, right, I need to be doing that, or this is how that would look in this particular context um, or whatever, um, so that we get new ways of looking at things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a sign in my lab um, the, about, you know, the deadbolt, and every once in a while um, I change the sign, make it put it up higher, put it lower, make it pink or green or something, right, to increase the salience of the strategy of reminding them that the, the students that they need to, you know, mm -hmm. the last one at the end of the day, they need to lock the deadbolt, right? So it's not that the strategy isn't working, it's the, that instantiation of that strategy has now become something that's too that we our brains are ignoring because it's it's not new in the environment, and and so it's no longer really seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We like I, if I go back to my reminders, I used to have one that was you know walk the dog, and it, it would pop up in everybody's on everybody's iPads. Walk the dog. Walk the dog. Walk. Well, after a while, they didn't even really acknowledge the <laughs> the reminder anymore. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Think yeah. Of something else. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's right. And then we have to think about other ways of for that same thing to happen. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're you know coming to an end here. What what advice would you give professionals, either teachers or speech language pathologists or, or any um, maybe educational professional, about working memory and, and communication or you know what what it's a take home message for them. Yeah, yeah. So I think this idea about the load, the cognitive load of particular activities is important to keep in mind and that it will differ for across different individuals. So some activities that are easy for some kids in a classroom will be will put a high demand on working memory for other kids. Um, and that means that those kids will differ in the, the extent to which they'll be available to do the kinds of thinking and innovative, creative uh, uh, problem solving that a, that a teacher might want to see. So we need to think about that, how the task loads for particularly, for, for different individuals. Mm -hmm. And I think the more we can be a bit introspective and see 
what is it about this, some tasks that put a heavy load on us or not will help us to begin to understand what we're doing when we're assigning tasks to, to mm-hmm. other, other people. So I think understanding your own strengths and weaknesses in terms of working memory will help you to understand other children's or other people's uh, strengths and weaknesses for working memory. Yeah, and I like the example you gave. If we if we attend a lecture on physics versus baking or whatever might be interesting, or I, I'm not a golfer, um, but I've had a few lessons in golfing, and there's so much to remember. Stand this way, put your hand like this, swing like this, don't turn that way, look this way. And it's just, it's such a huge cognitive load for me that mm-hmm. if I remember three of those things, I'm, <laughs> I'll be lucky. Yeah. So yeah, I, definitely. I think when we study how we learn, we can and have a better idea of how their our little kiddos learn. Right. Yeah, I have a colleague who made a remark about the kids who they were playing a game like Minecraft or whatever. And if you listen to your kid talking about those things, it seems like they have a phenomenal memory, perhaps. Yeah. But that's exactly where they're the experts, right? You don't have very good skills. And so it seems like a huge memory load to you. But in that case, your child is the expert on the content. And so it's it's not a very as demanding of a task for them to remember all kinds of, of items around that particular thing that they're expert at, right? This, you know, the becoming aware of when those tables turn mm-hmm. um, can help us understand why a child might struggle in some circumstances versus another. Absolutely. Um, just while we're on that tangent, would it would interest also have a link there? Yes, that's a you know really yeah. for for a couple of reasons, right? Interest mm-hmm. means you're you're getting the content, right? And so you have that content, but also that emotional responsiveness, yeah. right? That really can. Uh, can really lead to richer encoding and more vivid uh, memories, uh, easier to activate kinds of memories. And so those sort of positive, well, could be negative emotions too, Mm -hmm. but those sort of emotional responses really can get tied to memories as they get laid down, which can support um, their retrieval and their so yes, I think that really mm-hmm. can be something. Yeah, and it also can increase attentional focus, right? So if kids who are in doing something in which they're really engaged, their attentional focus won't be as much of a struggle for them because they'll be mm-hmm. they'll wanting, you know, driven to focus on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about parents. Is there kind of a, a piece of advice that you'd like to give parents of children who might have poor working memory skills? Um, well, I think pretty much what I've been saying is that, um, you know, the understanding of the working memory Mm -hmm. uh, load as we go, the strategies that you can put in place for the activities that you're currently doing. So I would want to, I would might encourage a parent to, to move towards, um, uh, putting strategies in place on ongoing activities rather than having sit down, you know, practice your working memory time. Um, so, and that can be done to some extent in, in activities that are, so for example, game, you know, game board style games, card games, you know, those sorts of things are often having lots of um, goal setting kinds of steps in them. I want to get you know, take the blue man so I can take the yellow piece after that or whatever. And that can be a natural time, of, but a more sort of um, microscope on using those kinds of strategies. So, the, you know, though, but naturally occurring kinds of activities mm-hmm. within your household um, 
and talking about implementing those strategies from there is, is the way I'd like to see parents focus their time. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good point for sure. Now, if uh, listeners want additional information, do you have any favorite resources that we can maybe share with them? Um, sure. Well, uh, my students have made <laughs> lots of great uh, projects, uh, a couple specifically on working memory um, and, and lots of others as well. So um, people could explore that. You've already found uh, and you mentioned you would post the TVO parents um, interview that I did. Um, there's a couple of other um, blogs, a blog I've written for DLD and me. Uh, one of my students has a, um, a thesis on our, um, repo- our, our Western repository for working memory strategies in the classroom. Um, so those might be places um, that you could, you could have a look. Uh, even, yeah, even one of my papers, uh, I think, um, is available um, uh, open access that people might uh, might have a look at they might find interesting okay so I'll be sure to put the links to all of that on the show notes at the parleypodcast.com so people can access them there and I don't have it under I don't think I have it open right now what is the link to your website the language and working memory lab right that's it yep the language and working memory lab the western DLD um, the DLD2 uh, page So I can send that link to you uh, so you'll have it. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I think that for many people, working memory, well, memory in general is is kind of such a vague concept. And uh, if anybody's ever taken a psychology class, you learn about all of the different types of memory and what's working memory, what's, and then they talk about short-term memory and the phonological memory and long-term memory, declarative memory, and there's so much. And so thank you for taking the time to kind of explain it and uh, apply it to everyday tasks and scenarios. I'm hoping that it'll be helpful for for some of the listeners because I know that even for myself, sometimes I have to sit down and, okay, what what type of memory is this? And (laughs) what does it mean? So thank you very much. And um, yeah, that's, I think that's good. I think we've covered everything that I had uh, in front of me here in terms of questions. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add? That's all. Thanks so much for having me, Chantal. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.